there is a program note for this episode. It contains an account of domestic abuse and violence and of miscarriage. Please judge for yourself if such an episode is appropriate listening. Now, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The Gospel of Luke tells us about a very particular group of women who went out to Jesus' tomb on Easter morning. But here is the interesting thing. This is not just a random bunch of women that the Gospel writer is talking about at this point. Luke actually went out of his way to introduce these women at an earlier point in his story. And here is what he says about one of them back in chapter 8. He tells us that she was Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa. And I know that at first glance that might not seem to mean anything at all. But think about it for a moment. Here is a woman who is married, and yet she's apparently traveling all over the Galilean countryside with a bunch of men to whom she is not related. I know that if that were to happen today, it might hardly raise any eyebrows. But think about what that meant for a woman back then. Back then, that would have been considered wildly inappropriate conduct for any woman. All sorts of sordid accusations would have certainly been made. And then there is the question of who Joanna was married to. She was married to Husa, who was a very important official of King Herod, that is, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Herod is someone who, we are told, was literally trying to kill Jesus at one point in this gospel. So, do you really think that Herod's top official, Husa, was good with the idea that his wife was wandering all over the Galilean countryside with a guy who his boss wanted to kill? Somehow, I do not think so. Something doesn't make sense here. So, what is Joanna's story? This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 6.8 Joanna's Story
as she made her way towards the place where he had been buried, together with Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and the other women, Joanna was undoubtedly the one who wept the loudest and was the most inconsolable. Jesus had done so much for each one of them. Mary had had such a huge number of problems that it had been said of her that she had been beset by seven demons. But of all of them, Joanna had been the one who had felt the most unsafe, the most alone, until Jesus had reached out to her. Joanna had had the hardest of lives. A girl from a modestly wealthy family, she had been married off at the age of 13 to a much older man. Her husband, Ruza, was an important official in the court of King Herod at Sephorus, and then later in Tiberias. She was his third wife. The others had both died in childbirth, and he had made it clear to her family that he sought the marriage for only one reason, because none of his other wives had managed to give him a son. Her husband was cold and distant. He was the king's most important steward, and he traveled often to oversee the king's estates and investments. The king, in those days, bought up many of the small debts that the people incurred as they tried to survive. When crops failed or some other similar disaster visited a family, they would have no choice but to go into debt in order to get by. When they fell behind on their payments, Ruza would be the one who dealt with them. He specialized in collecting their debts, and when, as was more often the case than not, they were simply unable to pay, he specialized in seizing properties and selling the debtors and their families into slavery. He was ruthless and merciless in the pursuit of these things. For this reason, he was greatly loved by the king. Joanna's life was far removed from all of this activity. She remained behind in the city, Sephorus, until the move to Tiberias, and managed the household and its many slaves. Her life was filled with luxuries. She wore the finest clothes and jewelry every day. She was the envy of many of her friends and neighbors, but she got no pleasure from any of it. Her life was something merely to be endured. She hated her husband's infrequent visits more than anything else. But at least they were mercifully brief.
Yakuza finally succeeded in making Joanna pregnant after about two years of marriage. The pregnancy was very difficult, and on more than a few occasions, Joanna came close to losing the child. Finally, after a two-day struggle and the aid of the best midwives in the city, she brought her first child into the world, a son. He came out backwards. He was gray and still, and he never drew a single breath. Joanna bled so much that she was lingering on the very edge of death herself. But the midwives, after hours of frenetic work, were finally able to staunch the flow. By that time, she was in a deep sleep, close to death. When she finally awoke after two days, she was exhausted, both in body and in spirit. She opened her eyes to see her husband scowling at her. When he had received the news of the birth and of the death of his son, he had been furious. He had dropped the project he was working on and made haste to return to Tiberias, arriving just before she awoke. As far as he was concerned, she was to blame for the death of his only son, and he was bent on revenge. That very night, her punishment began. He was smart enough to see that he could only abuse her so much. At first, he attacked her only with words. If she had lost any more blood in those first few days, it would have killed her. And he had decided that her torture must linger. As the days and the weeks went by, she began to recover some strength. And yes, he began to take his rage out on her body the body that in his mind had killed his son. He did all of this openly before the eyes of the household slaves. Many of their neighbors knew what was going on as well. Chuza didn't care. He knew that no one would ever dare to challenge his right to do whatever he wanted to his wife. So, night... After night after night, her slaves watched and listened powerlessly while their mistress cried out. Afterwards, once Chuza himself had passed out, after consuming ever greater quantities of wine, they did what they could to comfort her and nurse her wounds as she wept. Eventually, after several weeks, 
Many of them could stand it no longer. They knew that if they did not do something, their mistress would not survive. Clearly, this was Huza's intention. Her death would simplify his path to yet another marriage. Those who had been with the household longest had seen him act like this before. They swore that they would not let it happen again. Joanna was the only one who had ever been kind to the slaves. She was beyond caring what would happen to herself at this point, but they could not bring themselves to forget her in her great need. She spent all of her days paralyzed in body and spirit, refusing all food and drink. It was as if she had already embraced death as her only deliverer. She gave up, but her servants did not. The servants all had as much reason to hate Huza as anyone. He had always been quick to use the whip or the rod. Many of them wanted not only to save their mistress, but also to get their revenge on him. Finally, after several late nights of frantic discussions, they came up with a plan. They knew that the king was already upset with his steward, who had been neglecting his work to attend to his domestic affairs. Almost daily, letters would come from the king's secretaries, asking when Huza would be returning his attention to Herod's business. It wouldn't take much to get the king to withdraw his support entirely. Slaves know things about their masters that other people do not. Huza's secretaries knew, for example, that their master had been enriching himself through bribery and embezzlement for a very long time. It was the kind of thing that all the king's officials did, but Huza was very good at it, and they knew just how much he had profited at the expense of the king. Even more importantly, they had access to all of the records that could prove it. The plot was fairly simple. The proofs of Huza's deceptions were sent to the king anonymously by means of the trusted slave of another lord who was the distant relation of one of the secretaries. Soon a summons from the king arrived at the house, a summons that could neither be ignored nor refused. Oh, he fretted and he complained, but Rosa had no choice. He packed up immediately and headed off to Herod's court. He would not be able to return for weeks. 
Once he had left, the servants went and explained everything to their poor mistress. It was not easy, but they persuaded her that she needed to escape and save her own life. She did not leave empty-handed, but took with her some jewels and fine fabrics, and not because she desired these things, but because she knew that they could be exchanged for money. It also felt as if she was at least getting some revenge on her husband by taking these things with her. Two servants went with her, personal slaves, who were very devoted to her and to whom she had grown very close. They were debt slaves from the region north of the Sea of Galilee, and their task was to conduct her safely to Capernaum at the northern tip of the lake. The route was very carefully planned, and the travelers were hosted in the slave quarters of many prominent houses, without the masters of those households being aware. When they arrived at Capernaum, Joanna gave the two slaves their freedom. A small thing for her to give them in exchange for taking such a risk for her sake and they left her with many tears and cries of blessing, clutching manumission papers in their hands. As she watched them go, Joanna realized how alone she was now. She had no friends and no family. No one would dare to help her. She had the precious things that she had brought with her, but could not safely sell or trade them for what she needed. She might easily have ended up robbed and beaten to death on the side of some road, or forced to ply the trade of a prostitute just to survive, if no one had come to protect her. All the same, she could not regret having chosen to live, for a little while at least, free of the tyranny of her husband. No one should have helped her. To assist a woman who had fled from her husband and especially a husband as powerful as Husa, would have been madness for anyone. And that is exactly what the followers of Jesus told him when he heard about her. One of the leaders of the group was a man that everyone just called Peter or Rock. He had lived in Capernaum for many years, and whenever Jesus was staying in that town which he did quite often, Peter would behave as if he owned him. He thought that he should be the one who controlled, who could meet the teacher, and who couldn't. He could also be as dense and as stubborn as a rock at times, so the nickname fit him. Peter actually tried to forbid Jesus from even approaching Joanna. 
Don't you dare go anywhere near that woman, Peter said. He was a large and powerfully muscled man, and he stood in Jesus' way with his hands on his hips, physically blocking his path. Jesus was a bit smaller and lighter than the man that they called Rock. Most everyone was. But he was still powerfully built and had strongly muscled arms and legs from his many years of labor on the building sites of Galilee. If it had come down to a wrestling match between the two men, it would have been hard to predict who would have won. Peter would have brought more strength to the exchange, but anyone who knew Jesus would have expected him to fight with more intelligence and strategy. But Jesus was not interested in fighting, and never would be. Not even with his enemies, much less his friends. All the same, he was not the type to back down before the kind of challenge that Peter was offering him. Simon, he said, for that was the man's given name. Are you really so slow to understand? You know me. You have heard the things that I've said. How can I not assist such a woman? Peter was scandalized. She is not like us. Look at her. She's used to living in fine homes and eating the best of foods. She's never even known what it was like to go hungry until now. And I'm kind of happy to see her learn about it. Peter could be like that. Rude, brash, unthinking. If you took the trouble to get to know him, though, he actually had a soft heart. And Jesus did not hesitate to make use of his knowledge of that. The master told him her story. It was a story that he hadn't actually heard yet, but that was only too obvious to anyone who would take the trouble to really look at her. He told Peter about how she had been beaten and bruised, broken in body and in spirit. He convinced him that even if she still possessed a few of the trappings of wealth, she was the perfect picture of poverty. And you've heard me say it many times, Peter, Jesus concluded, the kingdom of God belongs to the destitute, to people like her. Peter knew that this was an argument that he would never win with the teacher, so he abandoned it. But that is not the real issue, is it? He cried with some frustration. I didn't want to have to say this, but you know the real reason why you cannot help her in any way. She has a husband, and she is under his authority, an authority given by God. Even you 
would not dare to interfere with that, would you? Jesus was just giving him a look that made him ask the question again more urgently. Would you? He was now pleading with the teacher to turn away. Her husband must be important and powerful, Peter said in a final effort. He didn't know at that point whose wife Joanna was, but anyone who truly looked at her would have likely come to the same conclusion. You can't afford to make an enemy like that. He will destroy you and all the work that you've been doing. This kingdom that you've been telling everyone about will all be brought down in ruin before it has even begun. Simon, Jesus replied, if I had been governed by fear, I would have never even begun. With that, the teacher simply pushed his way past the rock that stood in his path and moved directly toward the woman who looked so very lost in the town square. From that day on, Joanna was part of the group, and no one ever questioned it again. <laughs> they didn't dare. That didn't stop them, of course, from worrying about her powerful husband, especially when they found out exactly who he was. It certainly didn't stop them from looking over their shoulders and thinking up escape plans every time they came into a new town. It turned out, of course, that they had bigger things to worry about than Khuza, whose troubles with his master were not resolved for quite some time. In the end, it was not the enmity of Joanna's husband that brought Jesus to his untimely end. So, perhaps you can understand why Joanna was so distraught on that early morning of the third day after his crucifixion. When she had been at her worst, most lost and alone, he had seen her for who she was. Everyone else had seen her as a problem, a risk, as a woman who was on the run from her husband. She was damaged goods because she would never be able to escape her husband's power and influence. But Jesus had seen none of that. He had only seen a beloved child of God. His open embrace of her was the bravest thing that she had ever seen anyone do. And yet, he had done it without fear and without hesitation. The very idea that such a brave man could even live in the world 
had given her enough hope to go on living and to actually find the first true joy she had ever known in her life in this community of women who had come with him to Jerusalem. But now his lack of fear, his willingness to do the right thing no matter what the cost had brought him to this. If the world could destroy such perfect love as was found in him, what could happen to her? The women came to the place where he had been buried. You have all heard about what happened next. The tomb was open. They immediately feared that it had been plundered, or worse, that wild animals had gotten to the remains. Their worst fears seemed to be confirmed when they discovered that his body was gone. But then, even while they were still in shock, trying to understand what they were seeing, two strangers appeared, seemingly from nowhere. They were dressed all in white, and their sudden appearance was overwhelming. Already struggling with grief and confusion, they found themselves filled with fear and terror. But then the men began to speak. Why do you look for the living among the dead? asked one. He's not here, but has risen, added the other. And then they began to speak to them of some of the things that Jesus had said about what would happen when he went to Jerusalem. And then they were gone, disappeared so quickly that the women were left wondering if they had imagined the whole thing or if it had been a vision. The women stood in confusion for some time. It was not immediately clear to them what all of this meant. But it was Joanna who was the first to start to make sense of it all. For suddenly, in the midst of all the darkness that had been overwhelming her, she could see the possibility of a little bit of light. When she had been utterly defeated and alone, as good as dead, he had brought her back to life by giving her a place where she belonged. Now he had been defeated in turn. But what if his defeat were able to be turned in any sense into a new victory beyond hope and beyond reason? Why, even the possibility seemed to change her perspective on everything.
Well, that is Joanna's story. At least how I imagine it. At least I can't imagine that the story of how she had become estranged from her husband could have been substantially different from that. Actually, I will confess that this episode is based on a book that I've been working on for a few years under the working title, The Seven Demons of Miriam of Magdala. I'd love to get it published someday and tell the whole story. If anyone out there in the podosphere has connections to the publishing industry, please do reach out. But that is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so that you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with someone else who would appreciate it. The theme music for the podcast is Ada. And the mood music for this episode is Sad Trio and Pepper's Theme. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>